Happy St. Patrick's Day to everyone. See that some of us remember. Um, just before the Super Bowl this year, Ravens safety Bernard Pollard predicted that in 30 years, there would be no more football. Collective gasp. I'm not even allowed to say that in Texas, I know. What he meant was that football in the form that we have it now is on its way out. It's becoming archaic. It's going to have to change in order to survive. And he meant, or he said that in response to a recent, um, a recent uh, excuse me, study that had come out which linked football further, already been linked, to a condition known as CTE. Maybe you've heard of CTE before. CTE comes from repetitive brain trauma, which causes the brain tissue to degenerate and doesn't happen immediately, but after 10 or 15 years, symptoms of severe depression begin to show up. It is a terrifying disease. At the end of the article, Pollard, who was the leading tackler this year for the Ravens, about to go play in the Super Bowl, said this. The only thing I'm waiting for, and I hope it doesn't happen, is a guy dying on the field. We've had everything else happen on the field except for a death. You know, we understand what we signed up for, and it's terrible. Just a few days later, he played in the Super Bowl, and he intends to continue playing, knowing full well that football may one day require his life from him. Now, you may think that's a stupid exchange, but you have to hand it to him. At least he is not blind to the consequences of his commitment. I wonder if we could say the same thing. Do we as the church know what it is that we've signed up for? Do we understand that following Jesus actually does require our life from us? Do we understand that, as Jesus says in our passage this morning, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone? But if it does so, it actually bears much fruit. Do we understand that Jesus is always, not sometimes but always leading his church, his people, to his cross. This is where the Easter season is going. This is where John is moving us. This is what we've signed up for. And this morning we're going to read the story that comes behind Palm Sunday. The story of Palm Sunday itself. Some might say we're a week early. But as good Presbyterians, we always believe we're right on time, right? So here's a question that I want you to consider as we read together. Do you believe you need to die? Do you believe it? Do you believe that you need to die in order to be made fruitful? Let's read together from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news for us this morning. Starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask him to teach us his word. Father, we thank you this morning for this particular passage at this particular moment. We recognize that it is your grace to us. It is your grace for us. And we pray even now that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you would come near to us and that you would provide assurance in the places where we need it most. And that you would provide conviction where we need to know that our sin has a hold on us. Oh Lord, would you draw us close to you, for that is the end of the covenant, that we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might be your people, and that you might be our God. And we pray that not just from a legal point of view, we pray that experientially this morning, that that would be true of us as your people. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Sit up for a long time. Thank you. You did so well. <laughs> Charlie is our middle son. He is um, three and a half, almost four. He was wearing a cast for a while. You might have seen him wearing a cast. He's still trying to figure out how to walk again. But about two weeks ago, Charlie was sick. I probably shouldn't say this. It's a little graphic. He was vomiting, fever, achiness, all that stuff. This is just a normal day in our house right now. And one night, I found myself on the couch with Charlie, holding him, sitting up with him, trying to provide some measure of comfort, and without warning, because usually you get some kind of warning, right? But without warning, Charlie erupted. It was volcanic. Um, Everything just came up. That's the end of it. I won't tell you anymore. Now, what I should have done instinctively at this moment, as a loving father whose three-year-old had a broken leg and was in a cast was to reach over, kind of to hold him up, help him to get up, to hold his head over the trash can, and this his moment of weakness and pain of suffering. What I did instinctively instead was to jump away as if he was poisonous. So I wouldn't get any of that vile, evil stuff on me. And I just stood there and I watched until Jada yelled from across the room, somebody help him! And I came to my senses, and I went and helped him finally. I'm not proud of it. It wasn't my best fatherly moment. But I do think it hints at a deeper reality that I find absolutely disturbing about myself, and maybe you share this in common with me. I always instinctively run away from weakness. 
Instinctively, I run away from it. I never run towards it. My guess this morning is that some of you share this in common with me. For example, maybe you know what it is to run away from weakness in other people. When other people are weak, they are exhausting, they are time-consuming, they require time and energy and resources that are hard for us, that we don't want to give up. Maybe you know what it is to run away from weakness in yourself. Now, here's the reality. We are scared of what weakness says is true about us. And so we pretend that we're okay. Or we coach ourselves up to believe that we're okay. Or we conceal the parts of us that tell us that we're not okay. We certainly run away from weakness in our institutions, don't we? I mean... We love the momentum, we love the energy and the freedom and the ease that comes from backing a winning cause, from being a part of a winning team. Who wants to be a part of a business that is going down, that is sinking? Who buys season tickets for a team that is losing? Maybe some of you have. (laughs) You're good fans. Who wants to be a part of a church that is struggling? I realize that none of this is penetrating analysis. I'm calling attention to the obvious. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to, entreat, we tend to treat weakness instinctively as a problem. And if weakness requires that we actually be involved in that problem, it is a problem that deserves to be corrected as soon as possible. Here's my challenge this morning for you. What if all of our, what if all of our instincts about weakness are off? Um, what if... Weakness is crucial to our discipleship. What if weakness isn't a problem at all? What if weakness is actually God's gift to us, a means of grace that Jesus presents to his people, to his church, to keep them in communion with him and for the sake of their ministry to the world? What if weakness isn't a problem at all? What if weakness is what God has always called us to, the side of heaven? The calling of the church. And it deserves not our complaining and our frustration, but it actually deserves our joy and our gratitude. In our passage this morning, I want you to see two things about Jesus' love for his own people, two things about Jesus' love for his church that should redefine how we think about weakness, both when we find it in ourselves and our institutions, especially the church, and we see it in one another as well. Here are the two things I want to point out this morning. Number one, I want you to see how it is that Jesus actually comes to us, then I want you to see how it is that Jesus works in us as his people. How he comes to us as our king, how he works in us as our savior. First of all, how Jesus comes to us. So I'm guessing that many of you are familiar with this passage. This passage, if you have a Bible, you'll notice it's probably framed in these words. This moment in Jesus' life is called his triumphal entry. It's called his moment of triumph because Jesus is publicly unveiling himself as the Messiah. He is the long-awaited and final and consummate king that God has sent to his people. It is his moment of entry because Jesus is coming into the city of kings. He's actually coming into Jerusalem. This was the city that David himself had acquired from the Jebusites. It was the city that he made central to his kingdom. It was the city of God's promises. The city of consummation, the city of a new age. The triumphal entry means that finally God has sent his man to occupy his throne to deliver his people forever for his good and for his glory. This was supposed to be the end game. 
But in this scene, there's, a, there's something a little off, at least in terms of how we expect it to go, how the people expected it to go, at least in terms of method. Jesus, as the Messiah, has chosen to approach the throne on a what? Come on, it's a donkey. He's chosen to ride a donkey. Now, that wasn't entirely unusual. I know that donkeys don't seem regal to you. It's probably not the first animal you go to at the zoo to check out and get excited about seeing. But in those days, kings would often ride donkeys into their kingdom. And especially, specifically when the the season, the time was a time of peace. When it was a time for war, they rode horses. And this is what is so strange. This was, by all accounts, a time for war. The Romans occupied Israel. The religious leaders publicly and vehemently opposed Jesus. Enemies were everywhere. They were within the kingdom. They were outside of the kingdom. And they were powerful. If if this man was going to sit on David's throne, then there would have to be death and bloodshed. It was a time of war. And Jesus says as much in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son to be glorified. In other words... The hour has finally come. The moment is here when the kingdom is going to be delivered to me. And then he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And do you see what he's saying here? It is a time of war. And as wars go, blood will be required for the sake of peace. As wars go, blood will be required for the right man to sit on this throne to rule in the right way in righteousness and perpetuity. But make no mistake about it. The blood that will be shed, the blood that will be required, belongs to me. My victory comes through my rejection. My triumph comes through my weakness. I will fall to the earth and die ironically at the, at the hands of the people right now who are praising me. Ironically, at the hands of the people right now who are screaming for me to deliver them. So before we go any further, I just want you to see this in the passage first. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's an important one. This is probably the height of Jesus' popularity. It probably is. People are very excited about him. He's, this is his rah-rah moment. He is popular mostly because in him... The nationalistic hopes of the crowd are being publicly carried. The crowd thinks that what they have in Jesus is a Messiah who will bear their hopes and dreams. When what they really have in Jesus is a Messiah who has come to bear their cross. And I want you to see this. Jesus has no interest in enthralling them. He has absolutely no interest in his popularity in maintaining his approval ratings. We know that because of what happens next. And I say that as a tangential moment, as a point, because often in the church, we think that we have to dress Jesus up as popular in order to get him to be effective as a savior. But getting people to like him was never the mission of Jesus. And yet, can't we say with full confidence this morning that Jesus really did love people? He loved people. And wouldn't it be a shame if we confuse those two for ourselves? It is so easy to confuse love with approval. It is easy to mistake success or failure 
in winning friends and influencing people with what it means to actually minister the gospel to them. What Jesus is showing us towards the end of John's gospel is that what the world needs most, it is a love that is born out of sacrifice, a love that may in fact require our rejection. Not a love that is born out of a deep desire to get people to like us. A deep desire for approval. Just say it this way, love does not equal popularity. You know this. But popularity does not ensure love. So here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. And he comes into Jerusalem and he doesn't come flexing his muscles, but instead he comes in weakness and he claims his throne through his own rejection, through his demise, through his death. But why? Right? Have you ever wondered that? It's okay to say you had this question. I, I think about it. Why did he have to die? We're trained that that's just a reality. But why was the death of Jesus actually necessary for the inauguration of his kingdom? In other words, I could imagine another possibility here. Why not just assume the throne, Sal might do it, and clean up the confusion and mess and brokenness of the world little by little? I am all for gradual improvements, right? I mean, we've got, we've got all the time in the world here. Little by little. Why does it take the drama and crisis of death to actually bring in his kingdom. Well, I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis wrote in an essay entitled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? Here's what he wrote. Just to keep the farming metaphor going in a thoroughly confusing way, here's what he said. He said, if I am a grass field, all the cutting in the world will only keep the grass lower, but it will never produce wheat. You get that? If I'm a grass field, all the cutting in the world, all the manicuring in the world, all the improvement in the world, it'll only keep the grass in line. It will never produce wheat. If I want wheat, then I have to be plowed up and re-sown. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because we are a grass field. And Jesus has always wanted his kingdom people to produce wheat. In other words, I could say it like this. It wasn't enough for God to give you a new political leader, better education. It's not enough for God to give us a more Christian nation. God had to actually make us into new people. And the only way people are made new, the only way anything is made new, is by clearing out the old. It's by ruining the old. It's by the crisis of your own death in union with the death of our son, his son, excuse me, our Messiah. Jesus had to die because you and I had to be plowed up and re-sown in order to be fruitful. Now, I know that, that we, we, we believe that. I think this is really hard to convince ourselves of in practice. Think about this. It is much easier on a daily basis to believe that all that we've ever really needed from God is a little bit of improvement. I just need a better attitude. Just give me a better attitude. I need a change of scenery. I need more education. More time. More self-discipline, healthier relationships, more satisfying job. But don't you see that in the death of Jesus, God has said no to all those things? In the death of Jesus, God says that you've always needed more than that. You've never been as close. You've never been as close as you thought you were. You've never been as strong. You've never been as well put together as you dreamed you were. You've always needed a new self. 
You've always needed a total upheaval. You've always needed a thorough renovation. And you must fall to the earth and die. You have to be tilled up and re-sown. You have to lose your life in order to save it. This is why Jesus has come in weakness. He has come in weakness because in his coming, he tells us it was never enough to just improve us. We've always needed newness. And that newness has required the crisis of our own death and union with the death of the one who by his own life could actually make us fruitful. We had to be plowed up and re-sown. But that's not all. This offers some explanation, I guess, for why Jesus had to be made weak, but it tells us very little about our own weakness, right? In other words, if in the death of Jesus we are plowed up and re-sown, why in the world do we have to live in the shadow of that? Why do we have to live in the shadow of what he's already accomplished? In other words, why do I have to hear things like verse 26 that says this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. Now, he's talking about the cross. He's just told, told us that he's going to die. If anyone serves me, he must follow me to his own rejection. For in my weakness, there will my servant be also. Why is it, in other words, that the church must experientially participate in the weakness and rejection of Jesus? Why isn't simple substitution enough? can he just take my place? And can't I just be on the business end of that transaction? Right? Well, I think it's fairly straightforward, maybe not what we want to hear. But here it is, and it's always been true. Our intimacy and closeness with God is a covenantal priority for Him. This has always been true. It was true in Genesis, it's true throughout God declaring his covenant love for his people. It's true at the, end of the, at the end of it all in Revelation. And so what we find is that Jesus not only becomes weak for us, he actually makes us weak. He is invested in making his people weak. He gifts weakness to us, both as individuals as the church. Because he intends for us to be close to him. You see that in verse 26? Where I am... There will be my servant also. John Newton, maybe you've heard his name before, he was a famous Christian hymn writer. He wrote something similar in one of his letters. He wrote this. It's a complex sentence, so you might have to stay with me here. The Lord permits us to feel our weakness, that we may be sensible of it. For though we are ready in words to confess that we are weak, we do not properly know it, until some strength in ourselves is brought to trial and that strength fails us. And so to be humble and like a little child and to cry to him continually to hold us up that we may be safe is the sure, the infallible, the only secret of walking closely with him. Let me summarize it like this. The Lord permits us, he gifts us to feel our weakness so that we stay close with him. Intimacy is a covenantal priority for God. 
And we can say this. Is it not the case that in this season in the life of our church, there is any question that the Lord has permitted us to fill our weakness? You know, perhaps we always knew it with words. Perhaps we could discuss it theologically. Perhaps we confessed it liturgically. But now is it true that some strength that we have had in ourselves has been brought to trial and that strength has failed us? And so here we are. And I'm guessing this is true for you. None of it feels like a gift. The suspicion, the confusion, the hurt, none of that feels like grace at all. But as Marilyn Robinson has written, grace is not so poor a thing that it cannot present itself to us in any number of ways. And one of those ways is the sensibility of our own weakness. Here's what I would say. You believe it, we need to proclaim it. Our weakness as a church is not the result of God's grace failing us. It is just the opposite. Our weakness as a church is always the result of God's grace succeeding for us in the life of His people. It would be a mistake for us. Can I say this this boldly? It would be a mistake for us to wish away this opportunity. It would be a mistake for us to waste this season given to us by God to feel our own weakness more acutely and in the process, the grace to learn how to walk with Jesus more closely as a people, to cry out to Him. As Newton wrote humbly and continually like a little child, Jesus not only becomes weak in order to make us new, Jesus gives weakness to his church. Because our new life is always to be characterized by our closeness with him. Some of you may be familiar with the name Robert McQuilkin. Robert was the former president of Columbia International University. It's a small Christian Bible college in Columbia, South Carolina. And together he worked hard with his wife Muriel to grow the school. He was one of the most popular school presidents that, that, uh, that ever held that post at the school. When he was 10 years into his term, Muriel began showing signs of Alzheimer's disease. She began forgetting things. And of course, as with Alzheimer's, over the next seven years, her condition deteriorated. Sometimes she would walk the half mile to his office and his secretary would have to remind her that he was in a meeting and so she would go home. And then she would come back. And one day she did this ten times. And at the end of the day when Robert was helping her with her clothes, he took her socks off and there were her feet bloody. In February of 1990, Robert realized that Muriel finally needed him full time. And at the same time, the school needed a full time president. And so despite being probably the most popular president in the school's history, and despite most of his friends telling him to get full time care for Muriel, he resigned from his post in order to care for her full-time. I want you to listen to what he said in two similar speeches that I'm going to consolidate here for our sake. He said this. This is the easiest major decision that I have ever made. Muriel is almost always happy with me, and she is almost never happy when she's not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped. She becomes fearful, sometimes almost terrified. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I am with her, she is happy and content. 
And so here's the bottom line. I have to be with her at all times. You see, I made a promise to her. In sickness and in health, till death do us part. But there's much more than that. She is a delight for me. As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is still the joy of my life. I see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God that I long to live more fully, long to love more fully, and it's a great honor for me to care for such a wonderful person. You see, I don't, get, I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a privilege. One interviewer asked Robert, could she express her love to you? I mean, how far in could she talk? And Robert replied, well, Valentine's Day was always a special day for us because we were engaged on Valentine's Day. On that day in 1995, it had been a year since Muriel had spoken, I was on an exercise bicycle at the foot of the bed while she was waking up. At that day, she would often connect her eyes with me, and I could see her there. And those were the good days. And what I would do on the good days is I would put out a flag at our house to let everyone know that drove by that Muriel was having a good day, that she had smiled. Well, that day I was at the foot of my bed talking to her, and this is what I said. I said, honey, they say that we're victims. We're not victims, are we? We love one another, right? And with that, her eyes popped open, and she said, love, love, love. Those were her first words in almost a year. I jumped off the bicycle, I ran over, I hugged her, and I said, we really do love one another, don't we? She couldn't find the word yes, and so she said, I'm nice. And that was the last time I heard Muriel speak before she died, eight years later in 2003. There are two things that stand out to me about that story. The first is this. Relationships are costly. Robert gave up everything for his life. He gave up his wife. He gave up his career, his hobbies, his freedom. Caring for his wife, caring for Muriel wasn't free for him. He had to make room in in his own life for her weakness. Even beyond that, he had to be made weak himself to rearrange his whole life in order to keep her close to him. And then there's this statement. She is a delight. (laughs) Believe that? As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is still the joy of my life. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a privilege. Do you notice what is missing from his words? There is no reluctance. There is no second guessing. There is no trace of frustration or resentment. Muriel is his joy. He does not consider her weakness a curse, but a blessing. His care for her is not a duty. It's a delight. You know, in Christianity, we talk a lot about the sacrifice of Jesus, and that's a good thing to talk about. He talks about it a lot, too. It's what Jesus himself alludes to throughout our passage this morning. In the inauguration of his own kingship, he has to die. This is at the crux of the gospel. Here's what's happened. We have put ourselves in the place of God. We put ourselves where only God deserved to be, and so God puts himself in our place where only we deserve to be. There's this great lingering question at the heart of it all, right? At least there is for me. Why? Not why did Jesus have to die. I can get, I swear I can get through those dynamics and those mechanics. But maybe there's a more baffling question for us. Why in the world would Jesus choose to die? Why would he choose to do it? Economically speaking, what does God get out of the bargain? And here's the answer. He gets you. He gets the pain of enduring us. 
He gets more and more opportunity to give his own life and his own love away for us. What God gets out of the cross is an eternity of making you and me, the church, the joy of his life. And listen to me this morning. If our weakness is necessary to confront us more powerfully with that reality, if our weakness is necessary to convince us more deeply that walking with him really is the goal of creation, redemption, and providence, then so be it. May we embrace weakness not as an interruption, but as a gift of God's grace to know more of the joy that he has in loving us, more of his presence in our own life, more of his faithfulness, more of his goodness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have loved us, that you have put us not merely on the business end of a transaction, but that you have justified us, you have died, you have legally made us righteous in your sight ultimately so that you could be close to us. So that for eternity we might experience being the object of your affection, the delight of your care. And we pray, O oh Lord, this morning, we do pray this, it's a hard prayer to pray. If it takes weakness for us to know that more intimately, to know that more deeply as a church, we pray that we wouldn't waste it or wish it away. Would you give us more? Lord, would you make us to cry out to you? Would you make us to love you? Would you make us to depend on you like a little child, humbly and perpetually? We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are the church who is living in the joy of being loved by Jesus, loved in this way by Jesus. This is who you are. And so as that church, as the church living in the joy of her...